Well, last summer, we had a series called A Summer in Psalms. And Pastor Micah and Luke, along with me, preached on various chapters in this book of worship. And this morning, I want to return to the Psalms because the writers of this collection of 150 chapters captures the widest range of emotions from depression to despair, all the way to joy and worship. And such is the life of the follower of God, isn't it? One moment we can live in doubt and fear, and in a short moment to dancing and shouting to the Lord and singing. This year of 2020, we too have personally faced and seen waves of emotions, mostly sobering and troubling. It's been tumultuous. And I don't need to recall the many events that have led to our troubled world. However, we have been eyewitnesses of the power and emotion of two four-letter words, fear and hate. And this morning, I pray that another four-letter word will prevail upon our hearts. Hope. Let me open in prayer. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth reflect your word. And may the meditation of our hearts, corporately and individually, Respond in worship to the glorious name of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. You know, last week, as I mentioned, TJ um, exhorted us of living with godly contentment in a discontented world. And it was a timely message because all of us need to take a deeper assessment of our lives and understanding how we are cultivating and learning godly contentment. It was sobering to hear that we live in an unprecedented time of wealth and prosperity, more than any other time in history, yet we face a troubled world. And there is great temptation to lose perspective, to walk by faith and love, to not be consumed with fear, to live a triumphant trust in Christ alone. Our brother Jason just read Psalm 73, and for the next several minutes, allow me to direct our attention to this wonderful passage. I believe the psalmist provides us three key truths so that we can live triumphantly in this troubled world. Follow with me. Let me give you the first key truth. And that is, God is good. You see there from verse 1 through 17, but he opens up. Even God is good even when it appears otherwise in our world. The writer, Asaph, is one of the Levite priests. He's set apart to lead the people of God in worship. And he makes an all-important declaration Truly, God is good to Israel, for, to those who are pure in heart. Really simple and clear. 
God is good. To whom? To Israel, the people of God who became a nation when they were delivered from the bondage of slavery and oppression in Egypt for centuries and were let out by Moses. But he says, to those who are pure in heart, and particularly it's those men and women who walk by faith. But then Asaph quickly, he quickly confesses that his faith was shaken as he began to wander away in complete trust. Asaph was tempted to doubt God's goodness as he sees the wicked, that that they seem to flourish. Follow with me there in verse 2. But as for me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you see that this, this ministry leader one who was supposed to lead others in worship, confessing his shortcoming. Oh, but God was good to reveal to Asaph of his near calamity. Question, can you, can you testify of the same? I almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious. Any of you can relate to that? This often is our story. We often stumble and slip. We are often drawn to discontentment when we wander from keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and are ensnared and entangled by viewing matters that are not helpful to us personally. We spend Considerable amounts of time feeding our envy by what we view through movies, videos, TV shows, websites, mobile apps, whatever. I mean, we have just a myriad of options today. Or perhaps what we attend to or visit. Follow with me here as Asaph leads here from verse 3 onwards. He lists 14 areas that depict the arrogant and prosperity of the wicked. And ask yourself if what you view or listen or read are spent in these areas whereby you are tempted to envy the wicked. He, Asaph writes, there's no pangs till death there in verse 4. They don't suffer, in other words, they don't suffer from diseases or crippling health. Their bodies are in good shape, there in verse 4. They live in a trouble-free life. There's no pain in their lives, verse 5. Verse 6 says they're full of pride to the point of bragging and showing off their wealth. They're full of violence. Verse 7 says, their life is of excess wealth. A heart that is overflowing with stuff. Verse 8 says, they speak cruelly and unkindly of people. They speak profanely 
or I should say, continue in verse 8 there, they threaten all who oppose them. They speak profanely against God. They don't care. Their tongue speaks foolishly everywhere. There in verse 9. Even once religious people who even attend a church are affected to the point of not believing of God's attributes. You find there in verse 10 and 11. Their life is full of pleasure and riches. Find there in verse 12. Can you relate to Asaph's confessions? When you think of arrogant and prosperity of the wicked, this covers so many people, especially people of prominence and power. You know, our world loves to idolize the rich and famous. It could be a sports athlete. It could be an entertainer. It could be ones in political power or a model or an actor or actress or some celebrity. And that is why celebrities are held up high. These reality shows, movies, or, or magazines, or ads, they just they promote the lust. Success is defined by flaunting one's wealth and getting away with all types of immorality. And people from all over the world come to Southern California to pursue these same dreams and aspirations. You know, even this priest who is called to lead the people in worship finds himself struggling with the temptation of discontentment. He is supposed to speak to lead the people of God. And in his moment of discouragement, Asaph confesses his own frailty. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, he's saying, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm just struggling constantly. You know, self-pity and comparison are so dangerous because there's the temptation to believe and complain to God that I deserve better. Life is not fair. Why do people, why do good people like me, face trials. Ever ask those kind of questions? I know I do. That's that self-pity and comparison. You know, Asaph is sinking really fast, and he's about to complain aloud when he catches himself. He says there in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Basically, he's saying, if I speak blasphemy against God, I affect many people beyond myself. You parents, think about that. What you say at home. More is caught than taught. You betray what you say, that I love Christ, and then you, you complain. Guard your heart. Guard your tongue. Asaph was tempted that, to think that way. And so we thank God for his goodness, for his intercession by providing the word of God to not only to guide us, but also his spirit to confront us with our conscience. And guilt, when we come to worship, just lends perspective. It says there 
verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You know, circumstances affected Asaph to the point of losing perspective. He's feeling overwhelmed and discouraged. You know, and none of us, listen, none of us are immune from this temptation. You know, the loss of joy is very common. And we see the critical importance of worship, both corporately and individually, to gain the right perspective. It says, until I went into the sanctuary of God there, verse 17, then, then I discerned their end. It's so important, as I said, to be in a place where the true God is worshipped. For Asaph, beholding God's goodness by recalling his truth, his attributes, including his providence, providential care, really helped Asaph gain true perspective. In other words, listen, worship wakes us up from wandering astray. I'm reminded of God's goodness when I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, and, and it's not just for us, but even the disciples of Christ struggled with this. Jesus tells his disciples there in John 15, verse 26, that, that wicked men, wicked men will arise, but he has not left them alone. John records in verse 26 of chapter 15, but when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. He goes on in chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. The first truth we must hold on to all the days of our life is that God is good all the time. Even when it seems that wickedness and evil people appear to run rampant. It's, easily, it's easy to be discouraged by various authorities and rulers for their decisions appear in opposition to good and promote evil. I tell you, life's difficulties can tempt us to doubt God's character of his goodness, his control of all things, to believe God's word. Do we believe as the, Paul, as the Apostle Paul wrote there in Romans 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good? For those who are called according to his purpose? Do we believe that? Do we believe Joseph's words when Joseph writes there before his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. That's why the psalmist continues on to speak for truth 
Not only that God is good, but the second truth, not, like I said, not only God is good, but number two, God will judge. Follow with me there. God will judge the righteous and the unrighteous in due time. Find that from verses 18 to 24. Asaph gains a, a godly perspective upon entering the place of worship, and he gains this big, a larger perspective. And he cites there, from verse 18 onwards, he cites four important truths about God's judgment. Number one, God is setting up the wicked to fall to ruin. He says, truly, you, God, you set them in slippery places. You make them, them that is the wicked, fall to ruin. You know, the original language there, it's, he's noting that God has made a really smooth surface that's easy to slip. Sort of like setting up an ice, walking on ice there. He's setting them up to slip and fall quickly. He says, God's judgment is swift. He says there in verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. He says, God's judgment is terrifying. Look at there in verse 19. They're swept away utterly by terrors. And the fourth important truth about God's judgment is that when God's judgment arrives, one's glory and riches are soon gone. It's like a vapor, a mist, in verse 20. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. All those riches, all those trusts, all those things that the wicked, the arrogant flaunt, It'll quickly go. It will quickly go away. And we must gird ourselves and remind us of that truth. I think of James 4.14. He writes, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then what? Vanishes. I think of Proverbs 21.6. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Why is this important for Asaph to note this reality? Because he was growing discouraged as he kept his eyes toward the horizontal and not the vertical. He had to remind himself that God will judge in his time. He says there in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish, means I was senseless and ignorant. I didn't know what you were doing. I was like a beast. And that's not the, you know, not like what we say today, I'm a beast. No, I was like a beast. That means an unrestrained animal. I was just, I just, I was acting irrationally towards you. And it's sobering to see how far one's heart can go astray. And listen, none of us, none of us are exempt from this test. Listen to me. Men slip away from living triumphantly by faith when they don't trust God's righteousness and holiness, his character. For Asaph, it was so important for him to acknowledge his own heart becoming angry, Embittered, jealous, impatient, 
God, you're not punishing these wicked people. You're not doing this. Question for you. Do you think or act this way in your heart? I'm reminded of the prophet Jonah when he felt that God was too soft, too merciful towards the people of Nineveh, those wicked people. After he preached judgment upon these evil people, and God relented from immediate judgment. You find there in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I think of the apostles, James and John. They were angry at the Samaritan people for not welcoming Jesus and the party, his disciples. And Luke records there in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, he says, and when, the, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Oh, don't we feel like that sometimes? God, just judge these people. Just burn them. And, and we feel that impatience, that, error, that sense of just that anger that walls in us. But we need to be reminded and praise God that he has not dealt with us according to what we deserve. Asaph notes there in verse 23 and 24 that nevertheless I continue, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with counsel, with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. You know, God's judgment towards his children is not harsh question for you. Have you, have you ever thanked God for his patience towards you? Especially when you were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your time, your days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He writes, Paul writes that to Titus in Titus chapter 3. And wasn't that true for you and for me? And so this truth leads to our triumphant trust in a troubled world. I'm so glad that this psalm, because of this psalm, because God just shows us that we need Christ now more than ever. As I said, God is good. God will judge and God, point three is, God is our refuge. You find there in verse 25 to 28, Asaph quickly reminds himself that God has set him apart in all the universe and for all eternity. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You know, it's so critical to know God's providential care. Just just gaining that larger perspective. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist reminds us again, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. He will judge. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You know, when we behold God's mercy upon us personally, the less we are affected. Listen to me here. When we behold God's mercy upon us personally, the less we are affected by the attractions and the distractions of this world. I often sing to myself, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. And the things of what? Earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. John Calvin, one of my favorite theologians, he was this French theologian who understood suffering. He had suffered much through his life. He understood suffering while learning to trust God through trials. He once wrote, quote, Whatever be the kind of tribulation with which we are afflicted, we should always consider the end of it to be that we may be trained to despise the present and thereby simulate to aspire to the future life. Close quote. In other words, let me put it to today's <laughs> language. Looking beyond our current condition and gaze towards heaven, the eternal one, we need to look beyond this life. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So you may be asking, so how does Psalm 73 apply to me? I just want to give you three quick points. How does it apply to you? How does it apply to me? Number one, temptations serve to remind us that we are frail. We are frail in this troubled world. Friends, it's so important to know that the temptation to lose sight of God's sovereign control is a constant, it's a constant test of our sincerity. We need to remind ourselves that if it were not God's mercy in our life, we would do the same. Isn't that true? We would do the very same thing as those we look upon and say they're wicked, but we too would have done the same as I read there in Titus 3. That is why it is so critical to fortify yourself with the truth of God's word. Through reading the word, through, through meditating, to memorizing, to listen, to sing, to hide God's word in your heart. You know, not only has God is good in providing those means for us, and he's given us so many ways to access his word, but God has provided us one another, other members of the, other fellow members of the body of Christ, in order for the purpose to gather together. You know, this week, the elders declared that assembling together along with singing is an essential service for the spiritual well-being of God's people. We need to band together on a regular basis in order to remind and encourage one another of our great God, 
to not lose heart, to uphold and pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to demonstrate the love of Christ so that the world, so that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. You can't do that in isolation. You do it in community. You know, during the past few months, it's sobering to observe how fear is such a powerful emotion. Fear is so powerful that it's caused suspicion and isolation to the point that many are not meeting as God designed. I was reminded of a, of a Japanese soldier during World War II named Sergeant Yokoi, stationed in the island of Guam. When the U.S. forces landed, Sergeant Yokoi ran away and hid in a cave. He remained hiding in fear for 31 years. He knew that the war was over, but he was too fearful to surrender. In other words, fear, fear can paralyze us, and we miss the opportunities to live triumphantly. So how does Psalm 73 apply to you, to me? Not only temptations serve to remind that we're, we're frail, but point two is that trusting Christ is our only hope. You know, walking by faith is not, you've heard this, it's not a sprint, but it's a marathon. It's a long, long road where we're tested for endurance. And it's especially critical. It's a test, as I said, of not only our sincerity, but a, a test of exclusivity. That means, do we trust Christ alone for our hope? Do we really believe that he's our only advocate and mediator? Do we really believe that he's our only friend that's closer than a brother? Our trust in Christ alone either serves to authenticate our beliefs or invalidate that God is good, that God will judge, that God is our refuge. How we respond and model will serve as a major influence for the next generation. My brothers and sisters, listen, how we respond. The next generation watches us older ones. We must speak truth to one's heart. I just think of that verse 15 there. If I had said, I will speak thus, if I you know, speak and speak against God, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Us older ones, we're being tested, are we not? Are we going to remain faithful and see and trust Christ as our only hope? Temptations, as I said, serve to remind us that we are frail in this troubled world. And trusting Christ is our only hope. But the third application is that treasuring God's nearness and telling everyone of God's imminent appearance is it, it's so critical. Psalm 73 really applies here that we need to treasure God's nearness. Our gathering to worship serves to remind us that we constantly need a God word, not a godless perspective. An eternal, not an earthly perspective. A heavenly, not a hellbound 
perspective. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. You know, our gathering, once again, is to proclaim Christ for the purpose of not only to proclaim, but it's declaring that he will return once again. When we celebrate the Lord's table, communion, we celebrate till he comes. We know that he is the judge and ruler of the living and the dead. And the people of God are, of God are go- called to gather together to stir one another to love and good works, to encourage one another all the more as what? The day draws near. That means Christ is coming. He is coming soon. And so I, from a practical standpoint, that we are telling, we must tell everyone of God's imminent return. He will come as judge. And he has been good to all of us. But we must go and declare. And the church must not be in isolation. It must gather together. It must declare. It must proclaim. This is our opportunity to shine for Christ. Donald Whitney, who wrote the book Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, writes, quote, The Church of Jesus Christ is not a collection of isolationists. The New Testament describes the church with metaphors like flock, body, structure, and household, each of which implies a relationship between individual units and a larger whole. So when we gather, we gather to treasure God's nearness, and we do this by celebrating the fact that God is with us. Emmanuel, God sent forth his son, to dwell amongst us in order to give his life and shed his blood to pay the penalty of our sin. For while we were still weak, at the right time, what? Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, but God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God is with us. God is merciful to us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's not only with us, he's not only merciful to us, but he is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, friends, if you're here or if you're listening and you don't understand what I'm talking about, may I invite you to meet with me, talk with me. I would love to open the scriptures and to talk about this God that we come to gather to worship. I want to talk to you about Jesus because he is good. He will judge. He will return soon. 
but he is our refuge. This triumph and trust in a troubled world, it may not, they may not appear really like um, the society is totally going against us. Maybe you're just struggling on a personal basis. You're feeling like, I'm, I'm, I'm just having a hard time following Christ uh, to really trust him. We're all being tested, great and small. But now let me close with an illustration. And I have a, many of you know, I, I love to sing to myself, not in public. Uh, but uh, I think of a particular hymn. Uh, this hymn is called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And this hymn was written by a, a Scottish pastor named George Matheson in the late 1800s. The lyrics were written to this hymn was written on the evening of George's sister's marriage. Years before, George had been engaged until his fiancée learned that he was going blind. She told him she could not go through life with a blind man. George did become blind while studying theology. He never married. His sister had been one to care for him and helped him in the ministry, in his ministry studies, learning Greek, Hebrew, Latin, as well as a system in his pastoral duties. George was now 40, and his sister's marriage reminded him of that heartbreak. It was in the midst of these circumstances an intense sadness that the Lord enabled George Matheson to write this hymn. I want to just share one stanza. Let me read this third stanza. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. Talking about God. I chase the rainbow through the rain, and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. He's looking beyond just this life. George chose, he chose to live a triumphant trust in a troubled world, his own troubled world. He chose not to be embittered and complain, but trusted the Lord. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. You know, the Lord used George to pastor a 2,000-member congregation there to declare God's goodness. Praise God. Praise God that he does not let us go. Join me as I pray. Father, we confess we, our hearts are often troubled because we live in a troubled world. And so, Father, we ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on Christ. You are good to us. We know you will judge, 
And we thank you that you are a refuge. Father, we desire to have the Lord God our refuge. Why? Because that we may tell of your, all your works. Oh, Father, help us in the days ahead. Encourage us. Give us boldness. Thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have given us your spirit that enables us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And so we worship you corporately and even in our hearts, even in, in our homes. Lord, we lift up the name of Jesus. Amen.